Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. Good to be with you all. My name is Aaron Elmore. I'm the lead pastor here at Kirk of the Hills, and it's a, it's a privilege to worship with you today. It's good to have our students back. I understand they had an incredible retreat this past weekend, and so we're um, just trusting that God's going to continue to use that to bear fruit in the lives of our students and, and youth leaders, as well as other adults that went. And so we're grateful for that gift. Well, this morning we're going to talk about money. That's right. And uh, I'd like to begin by showing you a painting. This painting is called The Money Changer and His Wife. Uh, it's an oil on canvas. It's by the Flemish painter Quentin Matzies. He painted it in 1514. And my understanding is it's currently housed in La Louvre in Paris. I have not been there. If anybody wants to sponsor a field trip, I am in. So if we want to go on site to study it, that'd be great. As with art, there's always different interpretations and feels for what the author or what the painter, in this case, uh, is trying to get at. And so what we see here is a piece featuring an aristocratic couple uh, that is well-to-do. The man seems to be counting or making inventory of his wealth. His wife is holding, uh, maybe hard to see, but what appears to be a devotional book of some kind. However, you'll notice a couple of things. Uh, first of all, she is not reading her book. She's distracted, looking at what's on the table. He is also looking down. They don't appear to be very happy, do they? And that could be a style thing, a time period piece, but, but they don't look happy to me. And if you look even further, which, by the way, we've already looked at this painting more than the average person. They've had studies where they show that most people look at a painting somewhere between 8 and 15 seconds. Uh, they look at the text beside it. They confirm some kind of information between what's written about it and the piece, and then they move on. I can say I, I've been to Philbrook recently. I uh, went to Crystal Bridges recently. It's pretty true. There's a lot of art. You've got to keep moving. So we've already looked at this piece more, and if you look in closer detail, on the table there is a little round mirror. And in the reflection of this mirror is the unmistakable image of a cross in the window, presumably in front of them. And I think that one of the primary messages of the painter is to say that this couple, their wealth is drawing their attention away from the Lord, away from all the religious symbolism, from the devotional book, from the cross that is in front of them, and yet they're looking downward. A very simple but profound message that our wealth can be something. It doesn't have to be, but it can be something that can draw our hearts away and distract us from serving the Lord and having a Christ-centered life. And so this morning, we're wrapping up a mercifully short series uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes. I don't know about you, I've enjoyed it. I think a lot of people have told me they really like Ecclesiastes. It's very earthy, it's very honest. Uh, and so in a weird way, we like Ecclesiastes, even though it's, it's weird and brutally honest. And so our topic this morning as we conclude this series is money. Now, I like to talk about money. I don't know if that makes me weird, um, but I like to talk about money for a couple of reasons. First of all, because it's important. It's important. Money, our view of our money and our finances, our possessions, is a very key indicator of the spiritual condition of our hearts. 
It's important. I also like to talk about it because it's relevant. It's applicable to everybody in the room. No matter your age, your stage in life, you have money, you have control of resources, and you will throughout your time on this earth. We all have money, so this is a universally relevant message. The third reason I like to talk about money is because it's biblical. The Bible talks about money a lot because it's important, because it's relevant. We know the New Testament talks about money a lot. Jesus talked about money, but even in the Old Testament, here in the book of Ecclesiastes, we have a very rich man who is warning us about wealth. And whenever we talk about money and wealth, we have to put things in perspective. We have to be reminded that the majority of us are very wealthy compared to historical standards and compared to the standards of today. According to one study I read a few years ago, if you make 30,000 U.S. dollars per year as a household, you are in the top 3% of the world. Now, of course, we can talk about inflation and cost of living and all those different things. The point is, most of us are rich. We don't like to use that term. We compare ourselves to other people that have a lot more than us. But the reality is we are rich. And there's a lot of warnings in the Bible. Jesus said in Luke 12, watch out, be on guard against greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And perhaps even more strikingly, Jesus said in Matthew 19, he said, Jesus, uh, Jesus said, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. So that means people like us. Jesus himself said it's hard for us, not impossible. In fact, he goes on to say, this seems impossible, his disciples say. And, and he says, yeah, with God, nothing is impossible. So it's, it's possible. But Jesus said it's hard for people like us to receive the kingdom of God, to enter it and to walk in the ways, to see our true need when we think we have everything that we need. And so we should listen. We should respond. And listen, hear my, hear my heart this morning for you. I'm, my goal is not that you walk out feeling beat up because you're rich, because you have a lot of money. I don't want you to feel condemned, but I hope that we will all experience conviction and be challenged to move in a trajectory in this area. Because I think it's one that we can all grow in. We can all have a healthier view and understanding and a gospel-centered approach to our finances and our money. And so through the message of Ecclesiastes, Solomon wants us to see the true nature of money. Let's recall he had a lot of it. He had a lot of money. He's speaking from personal experience. And he says that it's meaningless to chase wealth and materialism. If you do that apart from God, if you chase after money, you will be miserable. It will be like chasing the wind. It will be like chasing a bubble that is elusive. And the minute you try to grasp it, it pops. And so he warns us. In this part of the book, Solomon outlines for us many of the problems that are caused by money. You see, we all think that having more money would solve our problems. And sometimes it does. There are, there are certainly scenarios where there are problems and, and, and people need more money. But what we don't recognize always is that sometimes having more money actually creates more problems for us. In fact, the more money you have, the greater responsibility that is. Because God's given you that and you are to steward that. And so there are certain hardships, there are hard realities about being people like us who are wealthy. But we think that if we just had more, it would solve our problems. So Solomon is warning us 
about the problems that wealth can create for us. So this is for us. The first problem that he shows is kind of a macro view. It's a big picture. He says that money can cause corruption. Can cause corruption. Solomon begins with this, this bigger picture issue of economic injustice. He says that those who are poor can suffer because of the structures and policies and practices of our community, which are affected by sinful people like us who create those and who implement them. Now, corruption can be defined as dishonest or fraudulent conduct by those in power. I'm not really sure that we understand corruption as much in our context. We certainly see a lot of it, but I also have friends who have lived in other places. In fact, my my friend Shano has lived in a place, his family is still in a place, that experiences incredible corruption on a daily basis. I know missionary friends who've told me that that there were times they were living in places where someone could just come and knock on their door and say, hey, by the way, you have to move today. Get your stuff out of the house right now. Or where you can be pulled over uh, and a police officer can just say, hey, you need to pay me some money and just move along your way. And you have no recourse because they'll just turn you over to other people who are getting money off the system. Incredible corruption. Certainly we see it here, but I'm not sure we can grasp the significance of this. Because in a lot of ways... Things are much better here than than many places in the world. The teacher says we shouldn't be surprised by this corruption because money has this grip on our lives and it can cause people when they have power to do unrighteous things. I think we can all agree that our distorted relationship with money is a frequent and significant contributor to the breakdown of human relationships and human flourishing. As long as we're on earth, we're going to see people buying their way into power, using public positions for personal gain, manipulating systems to their own advantage. So to mitigate this, we've created checks and balances, which is good. But even the best government will fail us. So we need to recognize that money can cause corruption. What do we do with this? Well, as Christians, of course, we want to avoid participating in that ourselves. We want to check our hearts, make sure that we're not supporting systems of injustice and we need to be repentant when we do we also need to pray for those who are in leadership we need to support and advocate policies and systems that are fair and just that don't just promote our personal agenda but are good and right for all of society and as god's people we need to have a special eye and pay attention to the poor and those who are disproportionately affected by the fallen condition of our world jesus gives us many examples the old the young the poor, the oppressed, refugees, those with physical ailments, mental or emotional challenges, those who might be considered on the fringes of society or outcast. The Bible says those people can often be subject to injustice. And a lot of that is tied to money. So while Solomon begins with this bigger picture problem of money, he reminds us that it's not just public officials who get in trouble and can be corrupt and lust for money. It can be a temptation for all of us. It is. It seems no matter how much we have, our hearts love money too much. We're never satisfied. We just want a little bit more. Someone once called this condition affluenza. I like that. We have a pandemic of affluenza. What if part of what is wrong with our society and culture is actually the fact that we have so much? And as the people of God, we need to lead the way into a new understanding. See, it's not bad that we have a lot. 
But what do we do with it? How do we think about our money? And Solomon provides a helpful image. He calls it the wondering appetite. Chapter 6, he says, Better is the sight of the eyes than the wondering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So I was thinking about this image of a wondering appetite and what it made me think of. I'm not exactly sure. Hopefully it was inspired by the Spirit. But it made me think about when I was a young man. I used to be very involved in pranking. Practical jokes, that kind of thing. And the problem with pranking is that you get away with so many things and then you want to do even greater pranks or more. That appetite grows as you get away with it most of the time. And so I can remember times when me and my guy friends, we would just like after school or on a weekend, we would get in the car and we would start driving around and just thinking of things that we could do. Pranks that we could pull. Who could we go and get today? Friend. Someone we don't even know, a, a, a school that we were in competition with. I mean, we, we had a wondering appetite that got us into trouble. And we think about this image, but certainly we can apply it to things like lust. And we think about how much power that has in our society and the wondering appetite that can be created by giving into that and just going out looking for ways to get into trouble and find things. But greed is no less powerful. It's an incredibly detrimental thing, and it creates in us a wandering appetite for more. And so Ecclesiastes argues that living for money will leave us spiritually bankrupt. There are many problems that it causes in our lives. So the next problem that he talks about is idolatry, and I think that's really at the root of all of this. He says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. See, the problem isn't money itself. The problem is we love it too much, don't we? It has too tight a grip on our hearts. Paul Tripp says in his book, Redeeming Money, which is excellent, he says the most serious problem anyone can have with money is not debt, it's worship. It's worship. It's the condition of our hearts. You see, our hearts are created with the capacity to love and desire and to pursue. And we can pursue power or status or sex or money. Whatever we're pursuing, it will become our master. We'll become enslaved to it. And people who want to get rich, who love money, who are eager for money, will face this constant temptation to covet and to desire what other people have, to have more and better. They'll be consumed by it. First Timothy chapter six, Paul writes this. He says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So what's at stake here? Scripture says that our love and our desire over desire for wealth can actually lead us away from faith and trust in Christ. It's a lot on the line. That's high stakes. This is important. And we would be right here to do some work in this area. Now, again, money is not inherently evil, and it's not about how much or how little you have. You see, here in Ecclesiastes, when he says the love of money here, people who love money, he doesn't mention a specific amount. Because the truth is, you can have a lot of money and love money. Or you can have very little money and love money. Or you can have a lot of money and trust in God. Or you can have very little money and trust in God. It's not about the money. It's not about the amount. We think that it's greed is only a problem for the rich. It's not. It's for all of us. 
There's lots of ways that we can have an unhealthy relationship with money. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, no one can serve two masters. You either hate the one or love the other. You'll be devoted to the one or despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So the question is, do I love God more than money? And what I think we do with a lot of these things is that we, we sort of we feel like it's a, it's a yes or a no. It's an on or an off. And so this question of like, is money an idol in my heart? I think a lot of us feel like, oh, wow, idol. That's a big, scary word. Like, I don't think I'm an idol worshiper, right? And so we think, we think about, okay, yeah, I probably think wrongly about money. Yeah, I probably love it a little too much. But it's like, okay, am I, am I idolatrous in this or not? But I think it, like with many of our spiritual matters, it's really more of a spectrum. It's how much my heart is being pulled in a direction that is away from God's best. It's not do I or do I not, but it's, but it's to what degree do I have an unhealthy view of money? What degree do I love money too much? And if I'm honest with myself, I know there's times and there's seasons where there's things that happen or come into my life where that squeeze on my heart happens. And I, and I realize I love money too much. I place too much trust in the money that I currently have. We need to admit this. We need to repent of this idolatry and the worship that we place on money. I mean, we need to renew our worship and trust in God, to fear God and to walk in his ways. As Ecclesiastes tells us, this is the goal. But there's more problems. Idolatry is probably the foundation, but there's more. It feels like an infomercial. And there's more. Money causes stress, doesn't it? I don't have to tell you that. You know it. You feel it causes all kinds of stress in our lives. And not just the lack of it, but sometimes having a lot of it causes stress in our lives. The first example he gives is relational. It causes relational stress. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. This is a proverbial way of saying, the more you have, the more people want it from you. It's true. The more money you have, the more the government wants from you, the more your friends want from you, the more your family wants from you. That's just the way life works, this side of heaven. And so having wealth can cause relational conflict. It can cause people to want that from us. Or even he goes on in verse 13 to say, I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners. Having a lot can cause harm and damage sometimes to our families. We have to be careful. We have to watch out. We have to guard against greed. The second level of stress is physical stress. He says the sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. The more money we have, the more likely we are to think about it, right? And you sit there at night and you can't sleep. It's just like work can lose sleep because of the stress of money. And then he goes on to give the example of the emotional stress. All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Great wealth can cause emotional stress in our lives and eventually can lead to anger. That's the last word that's used here. There's a lot of anger that relates to money and money conflict and our relationship with money and our relationship together with other people who might live in our household, who might be sitting beside us. Anger around money. And some of our anger around money is related to the next problem, which is loss. 
That's the problem with money. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. You build it up, and then you have to put a new roof on your house. Or you have to put in a new water heater or whatever. You're trying to get enough. You're trying to stockpile enough, and it just keeps going down. There's an endless number of things that can cause us to lose our money. And the truth is, with your money, you'll lose it either suddenly or eventually. Suddenly or eventually. Suddenly, life can take it away because there can be an economic downturn. You can have a change in your job status. There can be a a health change for you or your family that can cost you a lot of money. There can be unpredicted factors. There are so many things. I hate this is Bad News Sunday. There are so many things that can take your wealth away or diminish it significantly. And, And many of those you have very little control over. That's the problem with money. You can lose it. You can work really hard to build it up and you can lose it. Or you can just keep running up against thing after thing that keeps, seems like all the forces of the universe are trying to keep you from meeting those goals that you have. I love Ecclesiastes. It's so earthy. It's so real and honest. The problems associated with the curse of wealth are many. It corrupts us. It leads to idolatry. It causes stress. It's elusive. It's just like this mist that can be there and it's gone tomorrow. Yet the overall picture of Scripture presents a balanced, God-centered view of money. Just as money can be empty and meaningless, not something that we should pursue, it can also be understood as a great blessing and something that we can steward for God's glory. You see, we have to understand it within the same paradigm I talked about in previous weeks. Your time and pleasure and your money all are understood as, first of all, things that God created and said they're good. God created the world. He gave Adam and Eve great wealth in a garden. And yet our wealth and our understanding of those things has now been affected by the fall. And we're living in that tension now and the effects of the fall. And yet we also live into and long for the full redemption of that. It's true with our money. Our money, our view of money has been affected by the fall and yet it's being redeemed and one day will fully be redeemed. So how do we live into that redemption? Solomon concludes this section with a redeeming thought in verse 18. He says, this is what I've observed to be good. It's appropriate for a person to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life that God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is what? A gift from God. So how do we receive it as a gift and not... A curse. Solomon expresses the foolishness of seeking meaning and satisfaction in money. Instead, he calls us to find contentment and joy in knowing and serving God and receiving his gifts as a blessing that are from him. But whatever enjoyment we have, it needs to be God-centered. Without God, life is meaningless and miserable. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is preaching to us. And especially if we live for money. Without God's perspective, the pursuit of money will just leave us feeling empty and with an insatiable, wondering appetite that we can never fulfill. But through the gospel, we can find joy in God's good gifts and we can use them as a valuable tool for kingdom work. So I've got three things. I'm importing some extra material here from the New Testament because Solomon doesn't unpack for us the details of how to get there. So I want to add a little bit here uh, by pulling from some extra verses 
and suggest a few things that we can do to live into a redeemed view of our money. The first step is simply gratitude. Gratitude. Recognizing that God has given us these gifts. They're a gift from God and they can be redeemed in our life. Recognizing that everything that we have is God's, 100%. Not just our money, but our time, our talents, our energy, our passion, our experience. 100%, everything that we have is only by the grace of God. It's not God gets 10% and I get 90% to do what I want. 100% of all you have. You've got to believe that, not just in your head, but in your heart. That's got to be the controlling, guiding factor of your relationship with your stuff and your bank account is it's all God's. You remind yourself of that every day. It's all his. He's placed it in my care to be used for his glory. We can enjoy his gifts, but we should hold them loosely. The second step, which is based on that gratitude, is contentment. Contentment. We fight idolatry by practicing contentment. Paul wrote, 1 Timothy, he said, But godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of it. For if we have food and clothing, we will be content." With that, Because if you don't learn how to be content, you'll never be able to take the next step, which we're going to get to, which is generosity. Because you don't believe you have enough, you're not going to be a generous person. You're going to say to yourself, well, you know, I don't have enough right now, but one day I'm going to, I'm going to save up enough and I'm going to get to a point that then I'm going to be a generous person. One day I'm going to get enough raises or I'm going to move forward in my career enough that then I'm going to be a radically generous person. But for today, you know, I've just got to take care of my people. But if you don't learn to be generous today, you won't be generous tomorrow. If you don't learn to be content with what you have, you're not going to be generous towards others because you're still trying to take care of yourself. You've got to be content. Hebrews 13 says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content. Jesus said, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll wear. Trust in me. Philippians, Paul says, I've learned through life circumstances that the source of contentment is focusing on Jesus. That's where we learn to be content. And so if we're grateful, we recognize that everything I have belongs to God. We're grateful to him. I'm going to learn to be content today, which is an ongoing daily journey. You don't say, oh, I've arrived at this place of contentment. I'm good now the rest of my life. It's a daily struggle to be content because sometimes, you know, you, you have an experience you think you're good, and then you walk into your friend's house for the first time, and bam, it hits you. You're like, oh, man, this is a really nice house. they got really nice things. And suddenly you're discontent. You were perfectly content before, and now you're discontent. That's how it works. It just hits you when you least expect it, when we compare ourselves. So if we learn contentment, that will set us up for generosity. Generosity. Second Corinthians 9, it says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Gratitude and contentment sets us up to become generous people. And that's what we were created for. Because we serve a God who is a generous God. We were made in his image and likeness to reflect who he is. And so one of the ways that we reflect God's character is through being generous people. God gave us his best. He's a God who gives. Who gave us his son. 
And so we were created to be people who give. And giving is fun, isn't it? Maybe I'm weird. I, it's, it's fun to give money away to things that are important. Gratitude, contentment, generosity. Not three easy steps to your best life now, but biblical ideas and principles to help us guard our hearts, to fight the effects of the curse and the frustration, to help avoid the love of money and idolatry and the hold that it has on our heart. We fight it through gratitude. We fight it through working towards contentment and through giving more away. Are you you frustrated with the fact that money is elusive and you can lose it and, and it can just be gone? Well... Just give more away, and then you have less to worry about. I think it's one of the ways as Christians that we can be radically different from the world and the pattern that we behave, to fight the human nature within us and to treat our money and our finances differently. To point to the reality, there's a God of grace who's shaping my life differently and my values differently, and I'm going to treat my money and my stuff differently than the way that I would on my own. And to show that there is a God who is generous and who is just. I'm going to become a grateful, content, generous person. What an example that would be to our community. How it would change us as individuals, change our families, how it would change our community and our impact on the world for the sake of of the gospel. I pray that you leave this morning not feeling condemned, but feeling the conviction that I know I share. Anytime I think about these things, this issue of money from a biblical perspective, I'm always challenged. And to pray this prayer, God, by your grace, would you make me more grateful, more content, more generous? Would you show me steps that I need to take to cooperate with you in this transformation process? Redeem money in my life from the curse of the fall and make it a tool for gospel witness to the world. Let's pray about these things. Father, we thank you that you are so good and so gracious and you are a God who is incredibly generous. So Lord, would you shape our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit, the strength of your word that we have heard today. Would you change us and shape us and make us more like the Lord Jesus. God, would you make us into the people that you've created us to be? Help us, Lord, to point to you through the way that we steward all that you have given to us and placed in our care. May we hold it all before you. May we trust in you and may we be guided by you each and every day to use these things in such a way it'll be for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.